In Ukraine, elections is not an issue. When you're bombed and when you're at a war, elections is not your kind of first uh, priority. According to the constitution, uh, Ukraine can't hold elections during martial law. Campaigning is impossible. Ukraine doesn't have the infrastructure that can guarantee safe elections in this situation. Those formations who are on the front line, they can't say, okay, Russians, please give us one day, we're gonna go at a polling station. That's not how it works. We have around 8 million people, among them probably around 6 million voters that will have zero chances of voting. The actual turnout would be ridiculously small, I assume. If there's gonna be an election, I'm gonna tell my grandma not to go because it's, uh, dangerous. it's dangerous. It's actually dangerous. Hi everyone, my name is Anastasia Lopatina and you're listening to This Week in Ukraine, a video podcast from the Kyiv Independent. Every week, I sit down with one of my newsroom colleagues to dive into Ukraine's most pressing issues. And this time, we're talking about the possibility of wartime elections in Ukraine and the immense challenges to holding them properly. I'm joined by the Kyiv Independent Deputy Chief Editor Alexei Sorokin. Alexei, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Alexei, Ukraine's famous president Volodymyr Zelensky has been in power for a bit over four years now and the presidential term in Ukraine is five years. So the logical question many people are asking is well when is Ukraine gonna hold its presidential elections? And before we get into answering this immensely complicated question, uh, can you just tell us a bit about how Ukraine usually conducts its both presidential and parliamentary elections? What is the basic electoral system that we have? Well, for presidential elections, it's pretty simple. Uh, there's the first round of vote. If uh, the president doesn't uh, get over 50%, there's the second round, right? Uh, for the parliamentary elections, it's a bit more complicated because Ukraine has this thing of changing electoral systems every second, basically, electoral cycle, right? In 2019, Ukraine elected its lawmakers using a mixed system. Half were elected uh, through the first past the post system, meaning that in Kyiv, for example, you vote for a specific candidate and half were elected through proportional representation, meaning that you were basically uh, voting for a party. Mm -hmm. And the lists were closed, meaning that you actually vote for the party, not the specific person at this party. And the list is conducted by the party itself and you can't change it. Now, in 2020, Ukraine changed the law and the whole uh, parliament, 450 lawmakers, will be elected through basically uh, proportional representation, uh, but with open party lists, meaning that you're voting for a party, but you're also voting for a specific person. And if the party in Kyiv um, has a list, you can choose which specific candidate from this party you're wanting to see in parliament, right? Uh, it's basically closer to a one nationwide uh, constituency. Um, and this is going to be the first time Ukraine will hold this kind of election, if it will. Right. Uh, so if it wasn't for the war, uh, then Ukraine was scheduled to have parliamentary elections this fall, right? And then the presidential elections in the spring. Uh, but of course, Ukraine now must adapt to a new reality of a full-scale war. And that means a whole lot of complications uh, for our government when it comes to elections. So 
Let's begin with the legal side of the issue. Uh, can Ukraine actually legally hold elections at the moment during war? According to the constitution, uh, Ukraine can't hold elections during martial law. Martial law was imposed uh, when Russia launched its full-scale invasion in February 2022. And it's being prolonged every uh, three months now. So according to the latest amendment, uh, the, the new martial law will be held until November, mid-November, meaning that Ukraine already can't hold elections in late October, um, according to the constitution, right? And the constitution says that if uh, the five-year term of the parliament is exceeded and there is martial law in place, then this parliament will basically hold power until a new parliament is uh, conveyed after the martial law uh, is cancelled. And we know that from Zelensky and from his party that the martial law will be in Ukraine until the war is over. And there's also the martial law legislation itself, I think, which says that you can't hold presidential or parliamentary elections during martial law. So not only the constitution, but also another body of laws that would, I guess, need to be changed if Ukraine did decide that, you know, well, okay, we can amend the constitution, we can amend the laws and go through it anyway. Is that something that's possible? Well, no, because basically the problem here is that a law, you can change a law. Like you need right. 226 lawmakers to change any law. With the constitution, it's a really um, long and complicated process where you need 300 votes. You also need two uh, sessions of parliament uh, to basically have it in the first reading, then the second reading, then mm -hmm. the president also has to sign it. So technically it's possible, but it's not going to happen. I, I don't see Ukraine holding elections during wartime. And the legal issues aside, what about the actual logistics? What challenges is Ukraine facing when it comes to like actual electoral infrastructure, the polling stations, electoral commissions, international observers, that kind of thing? If we're talking about elections, first, it's illegal to hold them now. And second, if we are talking the basics, then Ukraine doesn't have the infrastructure that can guarantee safe elections in this situation, right? Uh, as we're speaking now, a uh, multi-storage building is hit in Konstantinivka in Donetsk Oblast, right? Uh, with people killed. And if we're talking about elections, then the polling stations are usually held in schools, in public places, mm -hmm. um, in all cities, all villages. Locations right? are openly announced. They're Russians openly, will know the locations. Yes, there is no secrecy. Everybody knows their own uh, voting station, mm -hmm. for example, my voting station has been there for, for years. It's in a school. Mm -hmm. uh, I voted there. My parents voted there. My grandparents voted there. So it's not a secret, right? And having, if we're talking about the number of people, then in 2019, if we're taking parliamentary elections, then there were 30 million uh, registered voters and the turnout was 62%. So there was around 18, 19 a million people who actually went and voted. Mm -hmm. And those people will be in public places on one given day. And that's insane. And plus we have over 6 million, actually 6.2 million Ukrainians currently out of the country. 
Millions are also internally displaced. Internally displaced. We have soldiers. We have, uh, uh, according to Zelensky, we have 750,000 uh, Ukrainians who are in the military or the National Guard or, mm -hmm. or military police. So those formations who are on the front line, they can't say, okay, Russians, please give us one day. We're going to go at a polling station. That's not how it works, right? Yeah. We also need observers in trenches, what Zelensky actually said, because... Um, for elections to be free and fair, they have to be observed by, of course. Uh, by basically uh, the UN, uh, OC, OC, different uh, parliamentary yeah, representatives from different countries. So it's impossible. Ukraine doesn't have the infrastructure, can't provide safety to those people, and also it costs money. And wasting right now money on elections when uh, some soldiers don't have enough jackets or socks, that's, uh, I don't think Ukraine can do that. You've mentioned the roughly 6 million people who are abroad, who fled the war uh, to go to Europe, the US and other countries. Um, they potentially could vote again. I mean, there is this theoretical way how all of this could magically work if everything fell into place perfectly. But even those people, they would have to come to like a Ukrainian consulate, which I mean, there usually is like one or two uh, Ukrainian consulates in, per country. So that means that, you know, families and women with children from all across France, for example, would have to come to one location. So, you know, imagine the amount of strain and resources that consulate is going to have because it's huge numbers of Ukrainians that are in Europe now, right? No, but they can they can increase the number of polling stations. For example, if we're taking Poland, uh, Poland has 1.6 million Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, that's an insane amount. Uh, and second of all, they can increase the number of uh, polling stations, but that's also money, that's also observers, that's also... All the same issues, but all abroad. This, yeah, so you have to, every village, every city in Poland has to have a polling station because... For those, Ukraine. For Ukraine, <laughs> because those people are spread out. They're yeah, not all exactly. of them in Warsaw, right? Exactly. And, and, and that's something that is possible. That's way easier than providing safety for on people front on the front line or in Konstantinivka, for example, right? But that's... That's such a headache that, to be fair, I have no idea why Ukraine should do. Something like that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's insane. Um, and unfortunately, I think that's an important point to mention, is that in Ukraine, elections is not an issue. It's an issue when we hear uh, foreign observers or foreign politicians saying that there should be elections. In Ukraine, when you're bombed and when you're at a war, elections is not your kind of first uh, priority. So what you're say. saying is that there is really not that much societal demand for no. elections. This is not an issue for for an average Ukrainian. It's not a it's not an issue for a Ukrainian because there is obviously there's not enough um, polls uh, during war. But if we're looking at recent uh, polls, which ask people like what are the biggest issues, it's again uh, obviously war with Russia. It's uh, shelling. It's uh, unemployment, it's uh, other stuff, right? Elections don't appear in the first, I don't know, 10 uh, points mm -hmm. uh, when people are asked what are they thinking every day right now. On the topic of monitoring missions and international observers, I imagine that's going to be one of the biggest problems too, because many of those organizations like OEC and the UN, a lot of them actually left the country when the war began, right? Like they said that, the situation on the front line is too difficult and too dangerous. 
And as far as I know, they've decreased their presence in Ukraine. So we would be asking them to dramatically increase their presence uh, very close to the front line, which, I mean, I'm not sure that those organizations would be on board with that either. Yeah, those organizations, uh, to basically say it politely, um, have a reputation of not risking um, anything. If there's some kind of shelling, they leave not only the region, but the country, basically, right? And now we're asking OCE, basically, to have several people at every polling station and telling those people that they can basically be killed. Because that's the reality. That's the reality. Yeah. And I'm not sure that any international organization or any even like foreign country will be risking its people for Ukraine to have an election in the trench. The other thing I'm thinking about is like, what would you do about the ever-changing front line? Like, at what point do you fix it and start organizing the polling stations along that front line? Because... What if at the day of the election, I don't know, a village gets liberated and, and suddenly that's Ukraine controlled territory? Like, what do you do about those people? Or, and then also, of course, a huge question is the amount of territory that's occupied. What do you do about tens of thousands of people who live there who don't get a vote? How are they going to feel when, you know, the country they're waiting for to come and liberate them just decides that, you know, we're just going to go through without you? Like, I imagine that's going to lead to some alienation, uh, which can be a real problem, right? Since 2014, Ukraine is holding elections with temporary um, occupied territories, Mm -hmm. as Ukraine calls them, right? Right. Um, But now we have more and more territories lost, right? So Mm -hmm. um, there's around 3 million people in Crimea. There's around 3 million people in the eastern regions that were occupied before February. Mm -hmm. So that's already six. And plus, we have around from 1 million to 1.5 million people in the regions occupied by Russia since February. Mm-hmm. So in total, we have around 8 million people. Obviously, some of them are kids, so not all of them are registered voters. But we have around 8 million people, among them probably around 6 million voters that will have zero chances of voting. And that's unfair. Ukraine already held elections with Crimea being occupied, but then basically what happened is that those people who wanted to vote for Crimea, they could have actually traveled to Ukraine because there was uh, border uh, checkpoints mm-hmm. and there were polling stations on border checkpoints, mm-hmm. meaning that if a person from Crimea wants to vote uh, in 2019, he could uh, cross the, uh, the checkpoint mm-hmm. And vote in uh, the closest, uh, basically, village, uh, village, uh, and then go back, right? They obviously couldn't vote for um, representatives in the first past the post system, Mm -hmm. but they could vote for the party. Mm -hmm. um, Or the president. Or the president, yes. Yeah. So that's why, for example, um, in the 450-member parliament, there were only uh, 420 four actually lawmakers because 26 were representing the occupied regions that didn't hold elections. Now this is not going to be the case because Ukraine again changed the electoral system but that's unfair to people and especially to people recently occupied who uh, basically don't have a chance of leaving their village or city because the front line you can't cross the front line. Russians aren't letting people out. Yes so they don't have even a theoretical chance of voting in the next election. 
which is, I think it's absurd to leave uh, those people without the right to choose Ukraine's future. So, you know, all of that combined, you know, the internally displaced persons, people abroad, people of the occupied territories, the actual turnout would be ridiculously small, I assume. We actually don't know because, again, uh, what happens during elections? You are tied to a specific polling station um, and they have a list. Now nobody has a list. Nobody has no lists because there, people zero are everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So, for example, if we're talking about my polling station in Kiev, right? Obviously, less people from Kyiv left, but still, they have no idea how many people on their list are actually in Kyiv, right? And if we're talking about cities like Kherson, Zaporizhia, smaller cities, smaller cities, resources. yes, uh, near the front line, then it's obviously an absolutely impossible task to have a legit list of voters, mm-hmm. and that actually opens up to to fraud uh, because if there's no actual um, lists of people who are tied to this specific polling station, then if they're allowed to vote in different polling stations... People uh, can vote twice? Yes. Well, it's it's going to be harder for Ukraine to make sure that people don't vote twice because they're not tied to any polling station. And if you start right now checking with people where are they going to be, for example, in October or November 2022, that's a whole other... Uh, headache for the Ukrainian government. And also, no one in Ukraine really has a plan for like the next week. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's 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 insane. Yeah. Even apart from the extremely difficult logistics, as we've talked about, I think there would still be many questions about the validity of these elections because, you know, democratic and free and fair elections are much more than just a smooth voting process on the day of the election itself. I mean, there still needs to be time and space for campaigning, for different parties to criticize each other and go at it and have debates and people to deliberate and engage with that information, right? And I'm not sure if that's really possible in the political climate that we're having right now. What do you think? No, there, it's it's obviously impossible. Well, um, first point I want to make, going back to the previous question, is we're definitely going to have a, a turnout lower than 50%. Which already um, is a huge question. Is a qu- question a free of free and fair, election. yeah, free and fair and legal elections. Because in some countries, if uh, an election um, has a turnout of below fifty, then it doesn't count. Ukraine has a really, really low turnout by itself. Like it had sixty-two percent last elections. It will definitely have a lower turnout because, for example, for me, I'll if there's going to be elections, I'm going to tell my grandma not to go because it's dangerous. Uh, it's dangerous. It's actually dangerous. Um, I'll go and we'll see if I end up at work next day. But like for many uh, people, it's going to be actually a choice. Do I want to take part in electing the future of my country or do I want to stay safe? And that's anybody's choice. Yes. And uh, going uh, further, um, answering the second question, meaning the campaign, well, campaigning is impossible. Uh, We have this telemarathon, which is insane and it deserves a whole other podcast <laughs> because it's, it's absurd. But what happens is that all, cont- uh, all channels are basically forced to unite and air one message, meaning that there's not a lot of room for campaigning, right? And second, obviously, we can't um, 
see political parties spending millions of uh, dollars on campaigns, on billboards, because that's actually gonna, I think, make people not want to vote for them. Because if they're spending millions on campaigns instead of helping the army, and every Ukrainian is them uh, giving like five, ten, hundred, a thousand grievances to the army, and then you have millions spent on campaigns. That's not going to look good. It's going to look really, really bad. So, um, and there's no process of creating this fair, equal campaign during wartime um, because a lot of places in Ukraine, for example, like villages on the front line, the only thing they have is a TV, right? And if the TV is controlled by the government because the telemarathon is basically sponsored and paid by the government, then the government has uh, basically the power of uh, shutting down political parties that it doesn't like mm-hmm. or, or showing more people from the government. Uh, this was the case even before the war. And right now, I'm pretty sure this can be a widespread uh, case, right? Plus, there's no political activity in the past two years. And for example, if there's a popular person right now, then he obviously or she didn't uh, create a political project. But you have to, there's a whole lengthy uh, process of creating actually a political party. So it's too complicated. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to go into detail, but it's impossible to hold a fair campaign in this scenario. Given all of this, what is the stance of the Ukrainian government on this issue? Because Ukraine has been really heavily criticized by certain European and American officials who just keep pressuring Ukraine to have elections despite everything we've just talked about. So just recently in late August, U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham publicly called on Ukraine to have, quote, free and fair elections. Uh, And, you know, other officials from the EU have said similar things. Uh, One official uh, from the EU even said that nobody expects the elections in Ukraine to be perfect, but we have to hold them anyway, which I think is an interesting wording. Um, So how does the Ukrainian government react to all of this? What are they saying? Well, privately, probably they're just swearing because that's that's insane comments. Uh, I want Lindsey Graham and the EU um, officials to go in a Ukrainian trench and be observers then in those elections. Um, But publicly, the Ukrainian government says that, okay, give us money. Uh, provide us with observers that will go into trenches, that will try to make those elections as free as possible. Okay, we we can try to hold them in 2024. But obviously, this is a statement that is meant to ridicule the statements made by Western officials because it's insane. It's impossible. And we have historical examples of countries during wartime um, not holding elections, what Ukraine needs to do, because obviously Zelensky saying this uh, can be seen as Zelensky doesn't want to hold elections because he's in power, even though he's going to win any election in the near future. That's uh, There's no debate about that, right? Mm-hmm. What would be good and what Ukraine didn't do and probably won't do is that if actually opposition uh lawmakers and opposition parties would issue a statement saying that they don't support uh, elections during wartime, because if official opposition says that, then you can't debate 
that Ukraine needs elections. If you can't say we're not being democratic or yeah. Zelensky is becoming authoritarian or anything. No, it's absurd because we have a situation where Zelensky is president. He has uh, a majority in parliament. But if we hold elections today, there's a 99.9% chance Zelensky is going to be elected president with a majority, even bigger majority um, in parliament. So what's the point? The point is spending millions of, uh, of dollars Uh, That we already don't have. (laughs) Yeah, that we don't have. Probably getting some people killed because of Russian rockets at polling stations. And then uh, some senators or EU officials will say, okay, now Zelensky is a true president. Because before that, there were actually questions. questions. That doesn't make sense. We're now going to be moving to some questions that we got from the members of our community. Uh, as always, I would remind you guys that Eco Independent has its very own membership system. It's really easy to support us. Just go on our website at coindependent.com slash membership. There's an option for a one-time donation and also different tiers of support. And you get really cool perks. One of those perks is sending us questions before every single episode. And we try to incorporate as many of them as possible. So the first question that we got was, uh, how are the different parties in Ukraine developing? Are they well-developed parties with many members and an election program? Because in the media, there is a lot of talk about the party of Zelensky uh, and also politicians who are loyal to Zelensky. And this gives the impression that parties are not well-developed and politics are very personalized. What do you think? That's correct. No, but like (laughs) if we go into detail, then Ukraine politics is really personalized. So there's no uh, party that Zelensky is leading. There's Zelensky and he has a party. There is Poroshenko, he has a party. There is uh, other people and they have their own political projects, right? Um, those who are uh, the parties that were established before the full-scale war, they're developed. They have uh, representatives and regional councils and mm-hmm. so on. But new parties, because obviously there is new heroes, there is new politicians, their parties and networks are not developed because, well, that wasn't their first uh, choice or, uh, priority. or priority or whatsoever to have a political party registered during war, right? So the problem here is that there is the old guard politicians who have their political projects, but they're less popular now. I'm not talking about Zelensky, obviously, but like Poroshenko, um, the, the pro-Russian opposition platform, which is banned, and now they're trying to reinvent themselves yeah they're soul searching um <laughs> and, and so on right timoshenko and her never-ending batkivshina uh, <laughs> party yeah but the new actors obviously didn't have time to uh, prepare their new political uh, projects right and so that's also an issue going forward right so that's also something that's unfair because i'm sure there are many people who are thinking about entering politics but they just understand uh, that this is not the right time. And if the war, let's say, ended tomorrow and the elections were scheduled for in a year, then I think we'd see a lot of political activity because people then would have the time and the moral kind of right to use the resources for political activity, etc. So holding elections now wouldn't be fair to those people either. Yeah. And one statement that um, I didn't make prior is that actually holding elections after the war will allow those parties to better compete, right? Because right now, during wartime, everybody supports Zelensky and he has a party, he can name it whatsoever, he can have 
random people as he had in 2019 in this yeah. party and people will vote for this party only because Zelensky. The example that I want to make is that the case of uh, the UK during the Second World War is that, uh, first of all, they didn't hold elections during wartime and Clement Attlee, uh, who was the leader of the opposition till 1940, he was actually uh, invited into the government and was of Winston Churchill uh, in 1940. Uh, and then he was appointed two years later as deputy prime minister. And when the war ended, uh, the war in Europe, what happened is that obviously both Churchill and Attlee decided that it's time for elections. The elections were called and the opposition won because people thought that, okay, Winston Churchill and the conservatives were really, really good during wartime. But now we want a peaceful uh, government who's uh, focused on reconstruction who doesn't have this sled of uh, appeasement uh, before the war and so on. And Churchill, the hero, the person who basically single-handedly helped Britain win the war, um, lost. And That's an example of good democracy. That's an example of good democracy. And if Zelensky holds election after the war, when people are going to think not only about the war effort, but also reconstruction, a business climate, development, mm -hmm. social issues, and so on, then actually the other people, the opposition, will have the time to uh, compete, to basically have a campaign, prepare to pr programs. prepare programs, to propose alternatives to Zelensky's rule. Because now there's nobody in their right mind will propose to, uh, I don't know, oppose Zelensky <laughs> during war, Yeah, which is can be considered treason by some. Another question that we got was politicians can politicize topics that lead to further cleavages in the society. Uh, how do you see this playing out in Ukraine? Are there already such topics that are leading to divisions in the country? Well, yes and no, because the main topic is war, right? And uh, nobody in their right mind uh, will say that Zelensky is doing a bad job leading the country during wartime because people support him and he has a he has the support of the majority of Ukrainians. There's divisions uh, now, for example, with several corruption scandals in the defense ministry, where uh, some uh, lawmakers saying that, well, why is this wasn't solved like a year ago, right? Why is there corruption? There's some internal um, differences in the way Ukraine needs to be preparing for reconstruction and so on, right? There, there's small scale. There's no uh, politicians who... Uh, take the stage and say that the government and the president is doing everything wrong. But obviously, as time progresses, more and more kind of politics, uh, Ukrainian domestic politics is back, right? Because unfortunately, people are getting used to war. And there's more and more issues that people start disagreeing with how the government is actually running stuff. Well, Alexei, thank you so much for joining us. It was very interesting to listen to you as always. Thank you. Also this week, the Ukrainian government appointed Rustem Umerov, the new Minister of Defense, replacing Alexei Reznikov. The Defense Ministry has been accused of corruption several times during Reznikov's time at the post. His replacement, Umerov, used to head the state property fund, took part in large-scale prisoner exchange negotiations with Russia during the war, and has been a big advocate for the rights of Crimean Tatars, since he's a Crimean Tatar himself. UK Defense Ministry said in its intelligence report published on September 6th that Russia has prepared an updated curriculum for this year's school year, 
incorporating military skills and even more pro-Kremlin propaganda when it comes to Ukrainian history. So young Russians will now learn how to handle assault rifles, grenades and drones, as well as first aid, the report said. And the Defense Ministry reported gains in Donetsk and Zaporizhia Oblast, saying that the Ukrainian military has made gains near Klishivka, which is some five kilometers away from Bakhmut, and also south of Robotina. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us and like our content wherever you're listening to this podcast. Make sure to go to kivindependent.com membership to support us so we can keep doing what we do. And also follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.